Hey everyone, and welcome to Murder and Mysteries with Megan. If you are new here, welcome, and if you're not new here, welcome back. I'm grateful for each and every one of you that are here today. On my channel, we talk about true crime, conspiracies, hauntings, and other types of mysteries. We are actually going to be talking about homicidal honeymoons and a couple of different cases where one of the spouses didn't make it home. Most of the time when we think about marriage, we think about loved ones and families coming together and celebrating a couple's love for one another and their choice to spend the rest of their lives together and to commit their lives to one another, taking vows and saying, till death do us part, right? Well, these next couple of cases, it makes you wonder the way that they played out, were they already planning an escape plan when they said, I do? Let's check it out. Number one, Gabe and Tina Watson. In 2001, both Tina and Gabe were students at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And despite the fact that there was an eight year age gap between the two, they got to know each other and began dating. As things typically go in new relationships, they were getting to know each other and different interests that the other had, and they wanted to do different things together. Well, Gabe actually loved to go scuba diving, and over the next couple of years, he actually became a certified rescue diver with 55 different dives under his belt. Because of the fact that Gabe loved scuba diving so much, it made Tina want to learn how to scuba dive as well. So in January of 2003, Tina decided, despite the fact that she had heart issues that could cause palpitations and sweating and even loss of consciousness in certain situations, she still decided to go ahead and take scuba diving lessons, even though that could present a lot of danger for her because of her heart condition. She wanted to do this, of course, because she loved Gabe and she knew how much that Gabe loved scuba diving as well. And she wanted to be able to enjoy these things with him. And not to mention the fact that the couple were going to be married soon. In October of 2003, the couple decided to say, I do, and then went on their honeymoon from Alabama all the way to Australia. First, the couple would arrive in Sydney, Australia, and spend a week there doing some sightseeing and seeing the different areas around Sydney. Then after that, they actually had a scuba diving trip planned for the two of them to go and enjoy after that week in Sydney. They would go scuba diving on the Great Barrier reef and would even visit a certain shipwreck. Now the couple actually had arranged this scuba diving trip with a scuba diving company and you know you might be thinking well if there was a scuba diving company what could have gone wrong right? Well unfortunately even though Tina only had five different dives under her belt by the time that the two were married and had gone on their honeymoon and didn't really have any experience in open water. Well, they still decided not to have a diver go with them and have the guided tour through the shipwreck and there in case of emergency, if something does go wrong, the couple still decided, well, you know, Gabe has 55 dives under his belt. He's a rescue diver. And so he should be able to help me if I'm in any kind of trouble. 
Well, on this particular day, October 22nd of 2003, things didn't go picture perfect. In fact, it turned into a horror story right before everyone's eyes quite quickly. By the time that the couple had gotten out with the others and gotten into the water to go scuba diving around this particular shipwreck that had actually sank back in 1911, they had only been underwater for a couple of minutes when suddenly Gabe surfaces. At about 10.30 that morning after Gabe resurfaces, he actually swims over to the Spoil Sport, which is one of the two boats that brought out all the scuba divers to this particular location. And he said to the diving instructor, Wade, who was on the boat, Tina is sinking to the bottom of the ocean and that he couldn't get to her. So what happened under the water those first couple of minutes on October 22nd of 2003? Well, according to Gabe, he told everyone that they had been swimming and scuba diving around the shipwreck and everything had been going well, when suddenly Tina got a look of panic and fear in her eyes that she started flailing around and as she was flailing, she knocked off his mask and knocked his air regulator out of his mouth. And once he got it back on and was able to see again, he said that Tina was floating down to the bottom of the ocean around a hundred feet down. Immediately, Gabe started telling everyone that he wasn't experienced enough to have rescued Tina and brought her back to the surface. He said that he wasn't ever trained that, even though he was a rescue diver, right? Well, it gets even weirder. When Wade, the diving instructor, dove down and retrieved Tina from the bottom of the ocean and brought her back up, he actually took her to the neighboring boat, the second boat that was also there. So it was across from the one that Gabe was on. The whole time that he was over there trying to resuscitate Tina. Gabe was just sitting on the boat. People said that he was hanging his head down, groaning, oh, oh, but there were no tears and it didn't seem genuine and seemed very strange to everyone around. There were also other eyewitness accounts that said that while they were diving, they had actually seen Gabe holding Tina in a bear hug and then push her down. In fact, later on, there were actually pictures that the divers had been taking while exploring the shipwreck. One of these photos had a picture of Tina laying on her back on the bottom of the ocean. The following day, they actually did an autopsy on Tina's body. It turns out that there was an air embolism and they also said that the key cause of death was drowning. Another odd thing though was that when they looked at Gabe's dive computer that was there with him to help them know if they're getting into trouble while diving, the activities and the way that he explained things happening that day didn't line up. So Australian investigators were already looking at him as a potential suspect. You know, was this an accident or did he do something to Tina? Abe almost immediately flew out of Australia and back to Alabama. He refused to talk to investigators more and 
didn't want to help with the investigation to find out what happened and caused his new wife's death that day. That all communication had to go through his lawyer. Investigators believed that what happened was that when these eyewitnesses saw Gabe giving Tina a bear hug, that this actually was him grabbing Tina and holding her while he turned her air regulator off and then back on once she wasn't breathing anymore and pushed her to the bottom of the ocean. Tina's father actually came forward as well during the investigation and stated that Tina had told him that Gabe had come to her and said that she needed to increase her life insurance policy and in the process go ahead and name him sole beneficiary. This all looks quite suspicious, right? Yeah, it does. And the Australian investigators thought the exact same thing, but they didn't have quite enough. It wasn't until June of 2008 that Gabe Watson was actually indicted for the murder of Tina. Finally, in 2009, he returned to Australia. He went to court and actually pled guilty not to murder, but to manslaughter. Said that his only mistake that day was not being a good dive buddy to his partner. As a result of this, Gabe Watson actually only received a four and a half year sentence for the death of Christina Mae Watson. However, this sentence actually would become a suspended sentence and he would only serve 12 months of it. Well, they ended up appealing this because her family was quite distraught by the fact that after their daughter had been killed, allegedly, and he had been found guilty of this and pled guilty to manslaughter, that he had only gotten a year. They appealed it and he ended up getting 18 months. At the end of the 18 months that he served in Australia, Alabama was actually waiting and wanted to extradite him to Alabama for charges to face because they believed that the plot to take Tina's life began on U.S. soil in Alabama. So they brought him back, but first they had to promise Australia that they wouldn't pursue the death penalty and that they would actually pursue life imprisonment all things look well, right? And that Tina might finally get some justice for her death. Well, he comes back and unfortunately, the judge on the case wouldn't allow for her father's testimony about increasing the life insurance policy and other items to be brought forward as evidence. In the end, he actually was acquitted of the charges because of the fact that there was not enough evidentiary findings or a financial motive to prove that he did so. Things, of course, did not go well with that, and her family was quite upset. And I can't say that I blame them. For someone to have admittedly taken part in their daughter's death and only serving 18 months hardly seems fair especially after the fact that during that stint between the time that Tina died and he actually had to go back to Australia and serve a sentence, he started dating a woman who looked very, very similar to Tina and they actually got married. Um, he vandalized Tina's grave, cutting off even things that they had bolted down to her grave and taking the flowers off of her grave site and things like that. 
this the disrespect there was not something that you would expect someone who loved their spouse and it was an accidental death to be making. So basically, Gabe Watson ended up serving 18 months in prison in Australia for the accidental death of Tina Watson. What do you think of this one? Do you think that he got enough for what happened that day? Do you believe that he was guilty of this? Do you think that it really was an accident and that maybe even though he had 55 dives under his belt because he wasn't really experienced in the open ocean and actually having to try to save someone that he kind of panicked and just saved himself? What do you think happened that day? I can't wait to hear your thoughts in the comments below. This has definitely been a controversial case over the years that it's been in the media. Number two, Cody Johnson and Jordan Graham. Summer wedding in Montana. The year is 2013. A beautiful bride and handsome groom standing there taking their vows and promising their lives to one another. Family and friends surrounding them. A song was written specifically for their wedding day with lyrics such as you help me climb higher for a better view you are my safe place to fall you never let me go and others like everyone wants a safe place to fall and you're mine nothing seemed to be amiss that day if you asked the guests that attended jordan graham and cody johnson's wedding but unfortunately the lyrics to that song would eerily point to the near future. Jordan Graham and Cody Johnson had only been married about a week when Cody actually went missing on July 7th of 2013. We later find out that on July 7th of 2013 that Jordan Graham actually took the life of Cody Johnson. So what led from honoring and cherishing and promising to give their lives to one another for the rest of their lives. How did that go from that to death in only a week? As I said, initially Cody went missing on July 7th of 2013. And when investigators actually brought Jordan in to find out if she knew where her husband could possibly be, if anyone possibly had it out for him, the typical questions in an investigation, she denied all involvement. She had stated that on July 7th that her and Cody had gone out to dinner with some friends. On their way back, he had gotten a text message and he had seemed quite upset. She then continued to say that when they returned back home after going out for dinner, that she had actually left her charger somewhere else and had to go and get it. She left the house and said that while she was gone, she got a message from Cody stating that some friends from out of town were coming to pick him up and that he was gonna take a ride with them and he'd be back later. And that was the last time that she had heard from him. She said that when she actually got to the house though, she had seen him getting into a vehicle with Washington State license plates. And that was it. No one saw or heard from Cody from that point on. 
Now, initially, investigators didn't think that this was foul play. In fact, they said that because of the area that they were located in Montana, it was very plausible that someone could have gone out and decided to go hiking and fell off somewhere because there were a lot of jagged rocks and mountain terrain and cliffs that someone could easily get hurt. And so the search began for Cody. Now, a few days later on July 10th, Jordan came forward to investigators and stated that she had gotten an email actually from a guy named Tony. That was all the information that she had. The email read this, Johnson had left with three friends, went hiking, had fallen, was dead, and the search should now be called off. Now this is July 10th, three days after Jordan had said her husband had gone missing. She also had mentioned apparently earlier that day to other church members that Cody had fallen off a cliff and died. Of course, we later find out that this was all Jordan's attempt to deter investigators from looking into her more. But the search went on and investigators started to look into things and into Jordan and Cody's relationship and things began to come to light. Apparently, Jordan had begun to get cold feet. She had been feeling these feelings before their wedding day, had gone ahead with the wedding, but had regretted it ever since. In fact, she had messaged her friends and apparently, a lot of people were under the impression that they had not even consummated their marriage, even after being married for at least a week. Now, all of this has come to light during the investigation and looking into where Cody could possibly be. July 11th, they're still searching for Cody and Jordan goes out with some friends and family and starts looking for Cody around the different trails and hiking locations that maybe they hadn't searched before. Her friends and family would suggest, well, what about this hiking trail? Have we checked over here? Um, what about this one? It's not very visible. Maybe we could check on this one because it's out of sight of the road where people may have looked for him. But Jordan seemed to know exactly where Cody was located. And she said, no, I just have a feeling that this is where he's at. And this, according to her friends that were with her, they stated this wasn't a straight shot. In fact, there were quite a few turns in, involved to get there. So why she would have thought he would have gone this far out to the loop um, in Glacier National Park, they didn't understand. But when they actually arrived there, she ran over, hopped over the railing, and looked over the side of the cliff and said, I see him, he's down there. Sure enough, Cody Johnson's body was at the bottom of this 300-foot cliff. At first, Jordan tried to say that the Holy Spirit had guided her to where Cody's body was, and that's how she found him. Eventually, though, on July 16th, she actually admitted that she had lied to investigators and that she hadn't been forthcoming with them, that something had happened that night. She admitted to having cold feet and regretting her decision to marry Cody. Also, during the investigation, of course, they actually acquired Jordan's text messages and some records from the time that her and Cody were together and the time of death for Cody. 
It turned out that she had been texting her friend stating, Oh well, I'm about to talk to him. Followed by another response from her friend saying, Well, let me know how it goes. Stating, But dead serious, if you don't hear from me at all again tonight, something happened. It turns out that night, Jordan and Cody had gone up to this particular trail. That while they were up there, they actually ended up having an argument, presumably about the fact that she didn't want to be with him anymore and that she regretted marrying him. And apparently they got into an argument during this time. She states that Cody then grabbed her arm, that she pulled away and then pushed and he went over and that she just left him there and went back home and pretended he was missing. She was later charged on September 9th with second degree murder. Three days later, she was actually released under house arrest after being considered not to be a flight risk. She was convicted and pled guilty to one count of second degree murder. She actually was only in trial for four days. She was sentenced to 30 years in prison for the death of her husband, Cody Johnson. Well, everyone, that is it for our homicidal honeymoon cases that we're going to cover today. Had you ever heard of these cases before? Do you think that their sentences were appropriate for what happened? I hope everybody has a wonderful and safe week. And until next time, my mystery lovers, bye.